Well, first, welcome to NextWeb. I think this is the 15th year of uh, this conference, if I got it right. Is that right? It's my first year, by the way. How many other people are, is this your first year? Okay, got it. And, and I have another question. How many of you are either in a startup or running a startup? Okay, what in the world are the rest of you doing? You're like me, I guess. Um, good, because it's, I, I have a little story to tell, and the story to tell will, will, uh, will probably be relevant to everybody. Um, but I'll try to, but, but I think I'll, I'll make sure to come back at the end and talk about startups some. So we'll go ahead and get started. First, I have to start by, by showing you this. Has anybody ever seen this before? Isn't that sexy? So this is one of our products. This is a, something we launched last year called Spotlight. Um, it's available, you can buy it, and please do. Uh, but it's, a, it's one of the many products that we launched since I joined six years ago. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about what we've done in the last six years. And the title of this presentation, as you can see, is From Design Thinking to a Design Company. Uh, but the title probably should be uh, Designing Everything, because it's really the path we're on. And I will tell you, we are not there yet. So first, uh, my name's Bracken Darrell. It sounds backwards. If you meet me afterward and you call me Darrell, I'll answer to that, or Bracken. I'm used to it. Uh, I've been at Logitech for six years, and I'll tell a little bit of the story of what we've done from a design standpoint at Logitech. Now, before I do, I have to give a little bit of personal background. I didn't uh, discover design at Logitech. Um, I think, in a way, everybody in this room discovered design when you were probably one or two years old, when you first started playing with blocks or, or, uh, or just experimenting. I, I have a kind of strong belief that we're sort of intuitively and naturally designers or design thinkers. And as we grow up, we continue to be. And then our education systems do a good job of creating structure and coaching us out of design and into other things that are really important. And they help us to, to get to build a learning uh, curriculum in your life that, that leads to where you got to today, which is you know a body of knowledge, you have a bunch of practical things you, you know how to do, um, but most of us lose a lot of that design thinking natural capability uh, that you're used to using. At least we lose the natural instinct to use it all the time. So I'm gonna come back to that as we get to the end of this presentation, but it's really important, I think, for all of us. Now, when I joined Logitech, uh, I've got a few people here who were here when I was here, from Logitech. When I joined Logitech, it was kind of a tough time. Um, we'd gone through this incredible, how many people in here own a Logitech product? Okay, look around. I'm surprised and I'm actually excited that there are more of you who don't own a Logitech product than do, if that's true, because you've got a great opportunity and so do we. Uh, but you know, Logitech's been around for 36 years. In the first uh, you know, 26, 27 years, we just had this meteoric rise. If you do have a startup and you experience what Logitech experienced, you've got an incredible ride ahead of you. Uh, that rise was, a, was driven by a lot of things, but the most important was the, obviously the growth of the PC. So we first made mice for somebody else and the PC kept growing. And then about 15 years in, we started making keyboards and the PC kept growing. And then we added PC speakers and the PC kept growing. And then we added webcams and then we added uh, headsets 
And all the time, the PC kept growing. And then one time, or one year, in 2008, the PC stopped growing. And, and it didn't grow in 2008, and it declined in 2009, and it declined again in 2010, and it kept declining for a few years. And, uh, and that was a very, very ugly shock for the company. I came in after four or five years of, I would say, experimenting into what we're gonna be next. And, uh, and it was sort of a low point in the company. Now I came from, how many people in here have ever, know, the, know Brown, Braun, the shavers, epilators, that torture device. If you're a woman and you've ever used an epilator, I respect you even more. Uh, and most men don't know what I'm talking about. If you're a woman, you do. Um, actually, the epilator, just as an aside, the epilator is a, it's a hair pulling device, usually used on women's legs. It was originally, and this is not a joke, it was patented as a chicken plucker. You can't make that up, it's really true. So the original epilator was a chicken plucking device and it's been applied to hair on women's legs mostly. That's an aside, feel free to tell that story at any cocktail party or dinner you go to later on today or this week. But anyway, I was at Braun and in Braun I, d I discovered or rediscovered uh, design. And if you don't know much about Braun, I'll give you enough to be able to place this conversation. Uh, Braun is the, it was not only make shavers and epilators, uh, but they also made a whole lot of devices back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And they had a designer named Dieter Rams. How many people in this room have ever heard of Dieter Rams? I'll bet a lot of you are designers. Uh, Dieter Rams is probably the, he, he shocked the consumer products world with a kind of a, a whole concept of 10 principles of design and a much but better, or less but better concept for design, which Apple and Jonathan Ive and others have, have, have admired and, and stepped, off, stepped off of to do even better things going forward. But Dieter Rams really changed the world. Now, when I got there, Dieter Rams had already retired, but that design ethos of Braun was very much there. And so I got really excited about design uh, or, uh, at, at Braun. And a few years later, when I got a chance to come to Logitech, I had a very strong point of view that, that what we needed was to, to, to really re-engage or engage the designer in, in, uh, in our company. And so the first thing I did was to go hire a head of design. One of the first things. I was lucky enough to find a guy named Alistair Curtis. And Alistair was the head of design for Nokia for many years. And he came in and he, he and I immediately did the first thing that, that when I looked back, um, I thought Dieter Rams had done. It was that Dieter Rams and a guy named Fritz Eichler. And that's, we, we created five principles of design. Now, Dieter Rams had 10, and we looked carefully at those, but we thought we couldn't improve what he did. But these were, these were the five that we felt like were relevant to our company, to Logitech. So I won't go through all of them. I'll just give you a couple of examples, though, so you know what they mean. So idea is one big idea. One of the big mistakes that everybody makes in design, and we all do it, is putting too much into a product. And when you put too much into a product, usually make it worse. And if you don't put enough into a product, it's not relevant to a big enough population of people. So it's hard. But, 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 but the, your orientation needs to be to focus on one big idea. The second one is, and it's a little harder to describe, but I'll give an analogy, is, is a soul having a soul that expresses itself through every layer of the experience. This is a quote directly from Steve Jobs. A soul that expresses itself through every layer of the experience. You know, when we, when we sell a product today, or when we used to sell a product, let's say we sold a mouse, 
that mouse, we would, we would, uh, you would, you would start with a with a with a good, a great product. You hope, and then it would be inside a box, and then it would be you'd see it somewhere on the web, and you might see a piece of advertising. You might walk into a store and see it. You might read about it in a in an article somewhere, a review. You might see an Amazon rating and somebody had written about it. Each one of those is a layer of experience. The problem is that if you're not coordinated, those layers of experience are different. And it's just like looking through glass. Branko uh, Ludovic, who's, a, who's a, a designer himself, gave me this analogy. And Branko said, you know, each one of those is like looking through a pane of glass. And if each, each, of, those, if each of those experiences is, is completely consistent, then you look right into the, the experience you envisioned. And the whole thing works. If each one is just a little bit different, you know how it is when, each, when a pane of glass is slightly cloudy? You, can't even, you can barely see what's on the other side. What you originally envisioned, that product that made it all the way to the consumer, is different. And so, so this idea of one soul that expresses itself through every layer of the experience is really critical to what we do. And, and we're not good enough at it today, but we're, we're working on it. I won't go through the rest, but I will, I will say effortless. Effortless, you might notice that those are pencils. Those are colored pencils, actually. You can't tell in the picture. And each of those pencils, and the reason we use pencils is a long story, but that's a piece of art that we had commissioned. Effortless, you'll notice, is shorter than the other ones because it takes a lot of work to get to the point where it's effortless for your user. It's extremely hard if you do it well, and you have to work and work. If you've ever written something and published it, you know that if you want to make it short, it takes a lot more time than if you want to make it long. You can make it long and stick it out there fast. I've published a blog today on my LinkedIn that's about this topic, and it's too long. If I had spent more time on that, it would have been shorter and would have been better. And that's what we norm I normally do, by the way. And normally, that's what we do with our products. We really work to make them better and better. So these five principles of design uh, really govern or drive or guide what we're doing all the time. And so design, as a result of Alistair, our five principles of design. Then we started hiring a design team. We started with industrial design. Alistair's an industrial designer by, by training. And we added UI UX, we added brand design, we added web design, we added every kind of design you can think of. We essentially built an internal design team inside our company. We didn't have to do that. The company had never had a designer inside, at least not an official designer, not a trained designer. But we did it because we wanted to have, Two reasons. One, we wanted to have integrated design in, in every part of the product experience. And the second one is we wanted to be fast. And third, we wanted to build capability that we didn't want to share with other people. And I'd say, largely speaking, we've been successful. So we have designers in five or six offices around the world. We've got a design department that is between 60 and 140 people, depending on how you count them. Um, and we have a very, very strong design operation. And here are the results. So this is, a, this is a measure of those awards on the right. Now, I'll be honest with you, nobody really cares who wins design awards except the company that wins them. But we do care because it's a signal, at least to us, that things are working. This, this shows you, for companies with more than a billion dollars, that what our awards per billion dollars of sales are relative to others. So you can see we're winning more awards than anybody else. Per, per revenue dollar as a result of what we've done from a design standpoint. But that's not really important. This is more important 
this is our growth rate. So the first year I was there, you know, I always, I always say, and it's true, that um, when I arrived, I had immediate, an immediate impact in 2013. I actually made things worse, which is true. Now, we declined 7%, then we grew 2% the next year, then 4%, then 9%, then 15%, then 13%, 16% in dollars last year. So we've had a steady, continuous growth over the last few years. And that is absolutely because of design. Now, I'm going to stop here and tell you something else. When I first started talking about design inside the company and that we were going to be design-led or design-centric, it scared a lot of people, especially our engineering team. Now, some of you will be thinking, why in the world would it scare your engineering team to be design-led? And the reason is because the company is fun, just like Braun, Logitech is essentially an engineering company. We have great engineering and great engineers, and they know that. And we've, we've built the company, we built Logitech for 35 years on the back of great engineering. And people were really afraid that well, what I wanted to do was turn us into a fashion company or a decoration company. And they didn't understand what I meant when I said, we're going to be a design company. We're not ever going to be a fashion company. We are becoming, step by step, a design company. And I'll explain more what I mean by that a little later. But as you can see, it's worked in terms of driving growth. And this is our stock price. So when I arrived, the stock, was, the stock jumped, kind of hovered, that disguises a little bit between about six and eight dollars until the, the, uh, the, the focus of our design-centric uh, efforts and our serial entry into new categories with new brands started to take effect. And as you can see, we've gone from six dollars to 39 dollars, we're, we're about there today, uh, in, in six years, which is a 600% improvement. Now, I will also tell you, and if you read the LinkedIn article I published today, I put the numbers in there, that this is not just true for us. If you took, from the time I was at Braun, if you looked at companies that most people would say were design companies, including Apple and Nike, but others that you, you might not know of, if you took those companies and you look at their stock price that year and you look at it again today, they've all, they've all outgrown the, the, uh, the stock indexes by a mile, by a kilometer, five kilometers, by a ton. They've grown over 200% during that time frame, and the average was about you know, 20 or 30. So this is not exclusive to us. This is a function of, of really integrating design into the way you work. Now, I'm going I'm to define um, three stages of being a design company. And this is also in this article. The first stage is the stage that that most of us experienced when I was growing up and when I started work, and even when I entered Braun, most companies were there. And that's the stage where design kind of came at the end of something. It was a way to make things look better. It was the decoration that came at the end. And that, that, was, a, that was a tough stage, but it was, you know, it was the beginning of design. Now, the next stage, which I would say, in none of these stages started and stopped a specific year, but they, they start to dominate some years. The next stage started, I would say, in about, about Dieter Rams was one of the ones who really started it, but it, it kept going, and I would say by, by, you know, today, it's in full swing, which is design's gone from being like kind of the decoration at the end, a second tier function, to it's at least on par with engineering and marketing and sales and strategy. And in some companies, it's actually 
viewed as the, the way you work, the design-centric nature of the company like ours. So it's really elevated itself. And so the experience that those companies are bringing to their users, their customers, is design-centered. That's stage two. Now, I, th I wrote this in 2007. I actually spoke, I gave a speech in 2007 at the Braun Prize, which is an annual award ceremony. And in that ceremony, I said this, we're at the beginning of a revolution. The most special places to work will be those that are design-led. But I didn't mean stage two design. I did not mean where I think most companies are today, which is where really they, they either have internal design or external design, and that design is as important as any function in the company and maybe more. I did not mean that. What I meant was this, and we're still barely scratching the surface, and I don't know of a single company that's doing this yet, including us. Design is such a powerful tool that it can be used in anything. And design thinking, or design doing, as Alistair calls it, uh, and, and a lot of people call it, is something that should be employed across, the entire, uh, across your entire business. It should be employed not just in creation of products or experiences, whether they're, they're, they're virtual or, or physical, but it should also be employed in the way you close your books. If, you're, if you have an accounting department that closes their books every month or every quarter, it should be in, it, it should be in the way you organize your meeting rooms. It should be in the way you organize your meetings. It should be in the, in the way I create my board meeting. That rapidly iterating, always improving, never quite satisfied, can always be better thing that you, you know, because when you were a kid, when you were two or three, you were naturally experimenting all the time. That should be done everywhere, and it's not. And nobody does it, nobody that I know of, except one. Except one, there's one place I've seen it, and I've seen it uh, many times. In the last, since I took this job in 2012, I've met with over 2,000 startups. And I've, most of them have been with founders, but, but it's often founders and a few other people. And the reason, I do it for two reasons. One is we might be interested in acquiring them or partnering with them or buying their services. And the second one is, and, I, and we love them, I love hiring uh, entrepreneurs into the company, either through acquisition or directly as hires, because, uh, it, I'll, and I'll come back to it, it's really about ownership and design. Uh, but the, the second one is for me, it's very selfish. I spent my whole career at big companies, at GE, Procter & Gamble, Whirlpool, Gillette, big premier companies. The ones that you come to a session like this and you wanna hear their best practice. And I'll tell you that they don't have anything to share with a good small company. A good, in fact, this is the irony of this presentation. It's, it's ironic in two different ways. It's ironic that, that Startups, small companies that are really well run, if they are really well run, are actually, they're the best unit of design that I know of. I'll, I'll give an extreme. You're sitting around a a, what looks like a dining room table with the other four people who work in your company. You might have a background in design, she might have a background in finance, he might have a background, doesn't matter. You're creating the product, you're creating the experience, you're creating how much do we pay each other, you're creating everything. And in that little unit of work, you are a, as, as, as far into this concept of designing in every discipline as I can think of. You're putting the user at the center of everything. If it's the product you're bringing to the, to the customer, 
then then you're really you're you're probably with the customer de developing it. If it's the the what you pay your your other the other four people at the table, they're right there and they're telling you if they agree or they don't and what and what they need and what they don't need and then whether they're satisfied. No, nobody's perfect, but that's what design's all about. It's getting the user in the center of everything and constantly iterating to keep improving it and dealing with those constraints. So so what I've seen is the only place I've ever seen really design integrated into every discipline is super small groups, super small teams. Okay, now to the irony part. The irony is that the books are written about big companies. Now why? Is it just because they're high profile? No, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. In fact, I, I was thinking about this on the plane here. I was thinking why in the world, if the best unit of work is the small startup, is the, are the best practices written about the big companies? And I think this is it. First, small, small companies systematically lose that as they scale. Every time you add a person, every time you add, a, especially if you add a layer of management, God forbid you add two layers of management, and then you segregate duties even more. And before long, you, you, you don't all fit around at that table. You need two tables, and then you need a room, a big room, and then you need four or five rooms because you no longer, somebody doesn't really want an open office anymore, so you have offices. And then you actually need a big office, you might need two floors, and before you know it, the, t the third floor is not really talking, this first floor, they might not even know each other, and you walk around and you don't recognize some of the people that, well, you don't even know where, you, I didn't even know they hired somebody last week. And then before you know it, you've got 500 people and then 1,000 people, and you're as far away from that little table where was the purest form of design is, as you could possibly be. And that's what happens. So why are big companies held up as best practices? Because what big companies are doing, and I listened to a big company uh, kind of legend, and I won't mention any names, but it was a great talk, um, talk about what, uh, give the advice to everybody in the room about how to innovate this week. And I listened to it and I thought, this is, I wonder if anybody else in the room finds this just terribly ironic. Because everything that he described about how to innovate which was you know, coming from Moses with the tablets, you know, here's how, here's how you do it, was exactly what you would do if you were a small company sitting around a dining room table discovering that things don't work. Because what do you do? You pivot. So you pivot, you experiment, you do it on a scale where it won't sink you all. So this, this concept of look to the big companies for the best practices is fundamentally flawed. Look to the smallest unit of work for the best practices, as long as it's well run. And I don't know who they are, I, I, have, I have some opinions. One of the companies I met during my experience, which again, I won't mention a name, was amazing. And they were amazing all the way up to about 35 people. I couldn't believe it. I came back from the meeting I had with them and I pulled aside the two or three people I work with the most often and I said, God, we're so far behind that little company in the way we work. You know, I say we wanna have design in every discipline, they're, they're at the purest form I've ever seen and they're already up to 35 people. They've gone way beyond that dining room table and they're still doing it. And then they got acquired. And they got acquired by a big company. Two years later, two years, I got a chance to look at them again. They were back for sale. They were as far from being a design company as you could possibly imagine. They were much worse than anything I've ever seen before. Their financial performance was a disaster. 
same company, two years, twice as many people. So, by, so, so the point is, uh, if you work in a small company, there is, there is something to learn from big companies, which is how much you should appreciate what you've got. How much you should appreciate what you've got. Don't listen to people like me and think, wow, they've got all the answers. They're just trying to do what you do. They're just trying to figure out how to get back to what you're doing so well, if you're doing it well. And if you're not doing it well, keep, learn, keep working at it. And don't look to big companies to figure out how to do it because they don't know how to do it. They're trying to figure it out. So the, the thing to appreciate from big companies is, God, if you work in a small company, you should say, God, we've really got something. How in the world can we hang on to this all the way till we're 35 people or all the way till we're 135 people or all the way till 2,000 people? So that's if you work in a small company. If you work in a medium-sized company, you've got a shot. And I'd say we're a medium-sized company. So anything below, we have $2 billion of sales. We have 3,000 people around the world, and we have a factory. You've got a shot. We've got a shot. We might not be so far gone that we can't get back to being a design company. But I don't know what it is yet. I'm not sure what the model is yet. We're experimenting, and we'll experiment more. At that size, you might have a shot of really breaking yourself into small teams and getting back there. Now, if you, go to, if you work for a really large company, good luck. I don't know the answer. I worked in, I've worked in some really good ones, and they're really good. And the guy I listened to last week is brilliant, and he's, I'm sure he's doing an amazing job. But he's having to create these completely false uh, approaches to create things that you do so well on a very small scale around that dining room table that... You know, I don't know, it just doesn't appeal to me at all. I have no interest in working in that, at that scale. It's just no interest. It's so much more exciting to feel like you're working in a small company. And if you're working in a medium-sized company, I'll repeat it, I am naive, either naive enough or idealistic enough to believe that we can get ourselves to that place. I've got a few here, people here from Logitech, and, and uh, I haven't, they, they've heard me say how much I hate big companies, uh, but they haven't heard me say how much I love uh, being Logitech and imagining that we can work that way. Now, I'm going to close with just, and, and if we have any questions, I'm happy to take one or two. I'm going to close by saying, you know, I, I started this talk talking about, you know, design companies and the three stages of design. You know, I'll remind you, the first stage was decorate at the end of the process. That's gone. If you're still doing that, you know, good luck. The second stage is where most companies are now, which is design's really an equal partner to the business. You know, you've got the finance people and the manufacturing people and the strategy people, and, 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 they're, and maybe even a little more than equal in some cases, which is, is great. And then this third stage, which I, and by the way, you gotta be there. If you're not there, then it's a question of how well do you do it? We're doing it pretty well right now, that's why we're doing okay. But, but the truth is you're never doing it as well as you can be, so you gotta keep working it, working it, working it. But the really exciting thing to me is to keep doing that, but then add the third stage. And the third stage is, is, is where I started. When you were a two-year-old kid, or a one-year-old kid, or a three-year-old kid, or a four-year-old kid, before you started school, probably, probably before you, you, you knew you had to listen to your parents on everything, you were a designer. You absolutely were a designer. That designer is still inside you today. It's inside all of us. It's a natural way to work. We're a social group. We're an experimenting uh, race or species. We wouldn't exist if, if nature weren't a natural experimenter and we're a product of nature. 
So we got to find our way back there. And we got to find our way back there in every function, in everything we do. Because that is the only way to innovate fast enough, innovate broadly enough to outrun everybody else around you. And even to keep up one day soon. So I'll finish by just saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of design. I'm a huge advocate of, of uh, small companies and startups. And I have a lot of respect for the big companies that I'm criticizing today because it's not their fault. They're doing very well, by the way, or they wouldn't be big, and it'll last a very long time that way. Now, let me stop there and see if we've got any questions. Yes. Hold on, I'm going to give you a mic. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering, um, you talked about the guy with the books who had, uh, has to be persuaded to think like a designer. What is the one thing you say to him to, 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 to persuade him? You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, we're, we're still experimenting with this. I think the, the good thing is a lot of the people who are in these functions that we don't think of as having any design, because they're naturally trying to fix things, they're already doing it. My, in my particular example, my controller, or head of, a, head of the accounting department, is a, is a natural designer, and he's working in his team just like a designer does. He, we've gone from... I, my CFO will probably kill me for saying this publicly, but we've gone from taking three weeks to close our books to I pretty much know the numbers within three days. He did that in three years, he and, the, and that group. Okay, I think we're done. we got enough movement that I'll stop there, but thank you all very, very much.